So we're going to pick it up tonight in Daniel chapter 2, verse 25. Daniel chapter 2, verse 25. While you're turning there, just a reminder, this coming Sunday we start a seven-week series leading up to Easter from the Gospel of John. And then after that, in the month of May, for the five Sundays of May, we're actually going to start our series in the book of Revelation on Sundays. Then after those five weeks, we're going to switch that over to Tuesday nights and finish the book of Revelation on Tuesday night. I'm doing that intentionally because I'm hoping to hook some people on Sunday to come on Tuesday once we get started in the series of Revelation. There is a method to my madness. Daniel. We talked last week about the fact that the book of Daniel really teaches us as Christians about how to handle pressure. And we gave the illustration that there's really three different ways that you and I can handle pressure. Uh, we, we, can, we can totally succumb to the pressure and allow the pressure basically to crush us. Or we can be like that submarine that they make that goes down in the very depths of the sea that they put such a, a thick wall around it that it obviously keeps the, the pressure of the ocean out, but it also is not flexible or movable at all. Basically, where that sub goes down is where that sub has to come back up, and there's not a lot of freedom of movement. I think the best way, and the way that I think God wants uh, to teach us to handle pressure and for us to learn how to handle pressure that's illustrated in the book of Daniel is how God created the fish to live at such depths. He created them to live at such depths by giving them the ability to, in a sense, push out against the pressure so that they could withstand the pressure of the depths of the ocean they live at, but yet also have a lot of freedom to be able to move. And uh, that's what we see in the book of Daniel. We see a young man and his companions who are exiles from the nation of Israel in captivity in Babylon. We've also already talked about why they, they are there. And they are going to give us a great example of how to withstand pressure in our lives. And pressure will build up at different levels, at different seasons of our life. Now, a lot of people, when they think of the book of Daniel, they think of a prophetic book. And, and Daniel certainly is a prophetic book. But when I teach, especially through books of prophecy like Daniel and Revelation, I'm not going to spend a lot of time giving a lot of the details about prophecy unless it has some practical application to me now. I'll mention it, but I'm not going to dwell on it because one of the, the ways I study the Bible for myself and one of the ways that I teach the Bible is to make sure that anything that I'm learning, I'm trying to have some kind of practical application of how does that affect my life. And if it, if it doesn't really affect my life, then it's not, that, it's not worth knowing about, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time there on that as far as the priority. So I want to pick it up in verse 25 of chapter 2 where if you remember from last week, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on planet earth at that time, the ruler of the, of the Babylonian kingdom, the, the kingdom that ruled the earth at that time, had this dream. 
And God was getting Nebuchadnezzar's attention through this dream. And none of the wise men of Babylon and even the great Nebuchadnezzar did not have the resources to be able to understand the dream or make sense of the dream. And again, it goes back to the sufficiency of our God. That, that all of the resources that they had available to them, most powerful man on planet earth, all the wise men in the most powerful kingdom on planet earth, and yet none of them had a clue as to how to uh, interpret the dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, except for Daniel. And finally, when they find Daniel, Daniel says, uh, let me go to my God and ask if he will reveal the mystery of this dream. And, and when God did, Daniel blessed God, and then Daniel said, let me go to the king, I have the answer for him. So Ariok quickly ushered Daniel into the king's presence, chapter 2, verse 25, saying to him, I have found a man from the captives of Judah who can make known the interpretation to the king. Something I want to point out here, the word man there in the Aramaic, and remember from last week, this section from chapter 2 through chapter 7 in Daniel is not written in Hebrew, it is written in Aramaic. It is one of two passages in the Bible written in Aramaic, the other in the book of Ezra. And this word in the Aramaic means a very young man, so keep that in mind. And then when he says from the captives, that word in the Aramaic speaks about someone who is for the most part, looked down on. They are sort of the lowest uh, class of people. In other words, obviously, compared to Nebuchadnezzar and the great Babylonians, uh, this is just a, a young Jew who, who wasn't even, his God wasn't even strong enough to prevent him from being exiled. And, and here he is, and yet he's the one with the answer. And the fact that it's this very young man who's from the lowest class as far as the Babylonians, who has the answer, reminds us of how God works and the kind of people that God works through. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. And God chooses that which man considers weak to overcome that which is strong. If you and I, like Daniel, will humble ourselves and, and we understand that that wisdom belongs to God, and in Christ there is all wisdom, he is the wisdom of God, that that we're going to be able to have, like Daniel, insight and discernment into things that I don't care how intelligent and what IQ and all of that, you don't think Nebuchadnezzar was an intelligent person? You don't think that all these wise men in in the country of Babylon had intelligence? They, They sure did. But they weren't connected to the God of the universe and they weren't willing to humble themselves and go to him for the answer. But Daniel, this young man from the lowest class of society did and God used him. Folks, it reminds us it's not who we are. It's not our social status. It's not our background. It's the fact, are we connected to God and are we willing to humble ourselves before him and seek his wisdom? And James even says, if any of us lack wisdom, Let's go to God and ask, and he will liberally supply all the wisdom that you and I need. So I wanted to point that out. I think that should be a great encouragement. Many times you and I think that, how could God use this, or what could God do with me? And again, what we're doing at that moment is we're looking at us instead of looking at God. Daniel didn't look at himself. 
He didn't look at himself as just this young teenager who was a captive, an exile, and what could God ever do with him? He never looked at himself. He looked and kept his focus on God. And that's what we need to do as well. And then the Bible says, uh, the king then asked Daniel, whose name was also Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I saw as well as its interpretation? And Daniel replied to the king, the mystery that the king is asking about is such that no wise man, astrologer, magician, or diviner can possibly disclose it to the king. And what Daniel simply saying is, king, it's not about man, it's about my God. And I'm going to give all credit to my God. It's about, again, my God. So notice in verse 28, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And we need to remember that as well. What Daniel was really saying there in the Aramaic is, Only God is able to do this. In fact, on down, he even says in verse 30, As for me, this mystery was revealed to me, not because I possess more wisdom than any other living person. In other words, again, Daniel isn't giving himself credit. He's not taking the opportunity to say, Yeah, you know, King, I am pretty smart. You know, I just, I'm just more wise than the rest of you. No. He said, look, it's not about me, it's about my God. And the only reason I was able to get this information is because I was willing to humble myself and go to my God and ask him. And in his grace and in his mercy, because again, remember from last week, Daniel didn't know whether God would reveal a dream or not. It wasn't like God was obligated to do this. Daniel says, God was compassionate towards me and my friends and he revealed this wisdom to me. So we need to remember Whenever the pressure begins to come, whenever life starts turning on us, we need to remember the God in heaven, not the circumstances that we're dealing with, not what we're dealing with down here. We need to give ourselves that top-down perspective and remember that God is on the throne. He is in control. There's always a God in heaven. And that's, what Dan, that's why Daniel never got freaked out when things happened, because he always knew he was connected to the God of heaven. And that God, his God, had answers. And, and if his God chose to reveal to him those answers, fine. And if not, that was fine too. But, but he, he never, you know, was full of angst and, and anxious about the things of life because he knew he was connected to his God at all times. And it was only God that knew it anyway, not himself. So then in verse 29, he says, as for you, O king, while you were in your bed, your thoughts turned to future things. Again, the word future in the Aramaic literally says after things. And the implication of that word in the Aramaic isn't so much that that Nebuchadnezzar was sort of interested in the future as much as he was interested at this point in his life in his legacy, which is where we go to as we get older our perspective starts to change and we start to think more about what comes after. What kind of legacy are we going to leave behind? And that's sort of where Nebuchadnezzar was going with this this, uh, focus on after things. It was sort of like, what happens after me? And and I wonder who's going to rule the world. And, and what's people going to think of Nebuchadnezzar when he's gone? And, and, and am I going to, to be known throughout history? And, that t- and obviously he was. And so that's where he was going. As for me, this mystery, verse 30, was revealed to me, not because I possess more wisdom, Daniel says, than any other living person, but so that the king may understand the interpretation and comprehend or make sense of the thoughts of your mind. I had to chuckle. I thought... 
Sometimes I don't even make sense of the thoughts of my mind. But anyway, maybe I you know, need God to unscramble those thoughts as well. So then he goes in, and, and I don't want to take the time, but from verse 31 through verse 36, Daniel basically tells the king what his dream was. And remember, that was one of the stipulations. The reason he got upset with his wise men was because he told them, I don't only want you to interpret the dream, I want you to tell me what my dream was, so that I'll know that you're legit. And remember, they, they say, well, we, we can't do that. If you give us something to work with here, we can make something up, basically, is what they were saying. But we can't work out a nothing. And the king was adamant. He says, no, you've got to tell me what I dreamed. So Daniel tells him what he dreamed. And then beginning in verse 37, he tells him the interpretation. He says, you, O king, are the king of kings. Again, as far as human kings are concerned. The God of heaven, and here's an important point, has granted you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. Literally, the word granted in the Aramaic means God laid the foundation. God gave Nebuchadnezzar this opportunity. Now, this is a great word that shows us the uh, way God's sovereignty and man's responsibility works together. Because basically what God was saying through Daniel is, God laid the foundation for Nebuchadnezzar to be a great ruler. But there were certainly things that Nebuchadnezzar did that was his responsibility that in a sense seized on that foundation and built upon the foundation that God gave him. The point though being this, That no authority, no strength, no power that even the world's most powerful man at that time on earth had was from him. It was from God. God gave him that. He entrusted it to him. And going back to last week, that's why all of us have to be reminded that the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the resources that he gives to us are all a stewardship. Uh, the, the children, I mean, we could go on and on. Everything that God gives to us, God wants us to manage wisely and skillfully. And it, it all comes from God. We don't get anything on our own, you see. And, and this was something that is in the background here that God wants to make sure that even Nebuchadnezzar realized in his life. And so, wherever human beings, verse 38, wild animals, birds of the sky live, he has given them into your power. He has given you authority over them them all, and you are the head of gold in this dream. Now, I want to make this point as well. Again, weaving this idea of God granting authority. Let's remember as New Testament Christians that God has done the same thing with us. When you and I go and make disciples, let's remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28. He said, all authority is given to me, now go and make disciples. So when you and I as Christians, as a church, as individuals, when we go out into the world seeking to make disciples, we're not going in our own authority. We're going in the authority that God has given to us and granted us. When we teach his word, we're going in the authority that Jesus has given us. Teach my people. The word of God. So again, we don't take this authority on ourselves. If we're speaking authoritatively, it's only because we know that God has granted us that authority. And that gives us, in a sense, a confidence of living the Christian life. Because if, if we weren't sure that this is what God wanted, 
If we were in a situation where I don't know whether God wants me to do this or not, I don't know whether this is his will or not, then obviously we don't pour ourselves into something like that. We don't have the passion. But, but when we know that what God wants us to do, this is his calling, this is his will, this is by his authority, then by all means, God wants us to throw everything into that. Because again, we're not doing it in our own authority. We're doing it in the authority and power and strength that God grants to us because it's what he has called us to. So Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold in the statue. But notice verse 39. After you, literally taking your place, another kingdom will arise But Daniel does say it will be inferior to yours. Literally in the Aramaic, it is of earth. It is of this world more than even your kingdom is. And he goes on to talk about these different kingdoms of the world. And we believe that, again, not going into too much detail here, that obviously if you trace history, you had the Babylonian kingdom. Then after that came the Medes and the Persians. And the reason why that was also a little bit inferior to the Babylonian kingdom was because it was a divided kingdom between the Medes and the Persians. By the way, the Medes ended up being today what we call the Kurds, the Kurdish people. Trace their ancestry back to the Medes. The Persians trace their ancestry down to what we call the Iranians today or people from Iran. That's where that traces down to. So you had the Medes and the Persians. Then after them, you're going to see we had the great Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire that came after the Medes and the Persians. And then after that, you had the Roman Empire. And then he begins to describe in chapter 2 another empire. And this empire, uh, if you look in verse 43, I'm just going to pick it up there, you saw iron mixed with wet clay. And in this last empire that he describes, this is far away from the Roman Empire. This is an empire that's going to sort of be the last world empire before Christ sets up his kingdom. And notice what the Bible says about this empire that is yet to come. Because we know, obviously the Babylonian Empire's already come and gone. The Medes and Persians Empire's already come and gone. The Greek Empire's already come and gone. The Roman Empire has already come and gone. The empire that he's now describing here has not come yet. But notice one of the characteristics of it. People will be mixed with one another without adhering to one another. Verse 43. Just as iron does not mix with clay. In other words, there's going to be this one last sort of world empire, but it's going to sort of loosely be associated with each other, but not real strong. And and the whole reason is because it's not one people necessarily that's going to make it up with a common purpose, a common philosophy and all that. It's going to bring together many different people groups trying to rule the world as one, and yet because they're mixed and and come from many different backgrounds, it's actually going to make them weak rather than strong. Which is what the Bible's really saying as you go through world history, even today, that, that many of these world empires just become more inferior to each other because just like today, we might have all the technology and all the military strength, but like many of the empires, they weren't conquered from outside. They were, they were fallen from within 
through moral depravity and weakness and abandoning God and idolatry and immorality and on and on and on, they became so weak that they crumbled from within. Now notice why we know that this kingdom he's describing here at the end of chapter 2 hasn't come yet. We know that because of verse 44 and other verses when it says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will raise up an everlasting kingdom that will not be destroyed and a kingdom that will not be left to another people. In other words, out of that last world empire, God's finally going to set up his kingdom. And obviously, that hasn't happened yet on the earth. And then he goes on to say, it will break in pieces. Literally, it will crush. It will make dust of all the other kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will stand or endure forever. And here's how God's going to do it. Verse 44 or 45. You saw that a stone was cut from a mountain, Nebuchadnezzar. Literally in the Aramaic, it's a building stone. Or let me throw this word out. Cornerstone. But not by human hands. In other words, it's a reminder that this stone is of God. It's not of man. It's of heaven. It's not of earth. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And notice what this stone does. It smashes the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold into pieces. And the great God has made known to the king what will occur in the future. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is reliable or it can be trusted. Now, interestingly... What Daniel chose to tell Nebuchadnezzar wasn't really good news, was it? It was like, well, king, guess what? You're not going to be around forever, and after you, there's going to be all these other kingdoms. But the bottom line is this. It doesn't matter how many kingdoms rise on the earth. They're just temporary kingdoms. They come, they go. Rulers on earth come and go. There's only one kingdom that's going to remain forever. That is Christ's kingdom. And Christ, the stone cut without human hands, coming out, is going to crush them all. And the only kingdom that's really going to matter, and the only kingdom that's really going to stand forever, is God's kingdom. So you better be part of God's kingdom, because otherwise, too bad for you. Now, there's times where, you know... Daniel could have said, God, I, I'm, I'm scared to go in and tell Nebuchadnezzar that. What if, what if Nebuchadnezzar gets mad and chops my head off? But again, because Daniel was connected to God, Daniel had faith that this is what God wanted him to do because he revealed it to him, whether it was good news or bad news or not. And, and he had to leave the results with God. And obviously, Nebuchadnezzar honestly did not get upset about the dream at all. In fact, notice that the Bible says in verse 46, King Nebuchadnezzar bowed down to Daniel. The, the most powerful man on earth was bowing to this young teenage boy who was in exile from a country that he, Nebuchadnezzar, conquered. That's how God works. If we just give our lives to God, that's how God works. And so he gave orders to offer sacrifice and incense to Daniel. The king replied to Daniel, certainly your God is a God of gods, literally more than any other God and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king elevated Daniel. But we know that really God was behind this elevation because Daniel honored God. Remember, God was going to honor Daniel and he will do the same thing with us. 
And he granted him authority over the entire province of Babylon and made him the main prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Literally, Daniel became a ruler of rulers. And don't miss this, verse 49. Daniel never forgot his friends who prayed with him about this. Because at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration, literally the everyday affairs of the province of Babylon, and Daniel himself served in the king's court, literally in the inner circle of influence. God put Daniel at a strategic place of influence. And God will do the same thing with us when we live an uncompromising life and when we go in God's authority and we're, we're not about honoring ourselves or lifting ourselves up, but when we're all about honoring God and elevating God, God will make sure, even if we are the youngest, most insignificant person on this earth and we're not from the right social class and we're we're not from this and we're not from that that it's not about all those external things that we measure people by on earth it's about do we honor God and if we honor God like Daniel God will make sure that he puts us in places of influence so that he can use us to bring honor and glory to him that's what it's all about with God and so we see the sufficiency of God that here's this young man from Israel who had more insight than all the wise men and the most powerful people on planet earth at that time because he was willing to humble himself before God. Now, we come to chapter 3. Before we get to chapter 3 and Nebuchadnezzar building this statue, there's an important, I think, pause here for this reason. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar was enamored with Daniel and with Daniel's God and and obviously at this point acknowledged. And we don't know exactly how much time between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. But what we do know is there was enough time for Nebuchadnezzar to make a choice. And somewhere along the line, instead of Nebuchadnezzar continuing to live in humility, somewhere along the line he got lifted back up in pride. And the point I want to make, because it's certainly true in my life, and it's something all of us, if we're honest, battle with, is pride. And we've got to be careful that even at times in our life, like Nebuchadnezzar, where we may be at a point of humility or willing to humble ourselves, that pride, the Bible says, is always sort of knocking at the door of our lives. And the Bible teaches so much about pride and God's perspective on pride. The Bible says God hates pride. The Bible says God rejects the proud but gives grace to the humble. Uh, There's so much about pride comes before a fall. I, I mean, on and on, the Bible warns us about pride. We know that when the Bible describes the fall of Satan, Lucifer, that the whole reason Lucifer, the the, the a great angelic being that God created fell was because of pride. I want to be like the Most High. I want to be like God. I want to be lifted up above God, you know. So it was all about pride. And so when Satan tempts us and, and the world tries to pressure us and our own flesh wants fed, it all comes back to pride. And so before we ever enter into chapter 3, let's make a mark there that you and I continually, every day, have to check pride in our lives. Because pride will creep into our lives so easily. Because we are prone to pride. 
And somewhere along the line, instead of Nebuchadnezzar taking the information that Daniel gave him about his dream and continuing to live a life of humility before the God of Daniel, he got lifted up in pride. And here's what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar had a golden statue made. It was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And he erected it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. By the way, the word erected there in the uh, Aramaic means to endure. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar's plan was, I'm going to build a statue so big and so strong that it will endure generations. It'll be around long after I'm gone, so people will never forget Nebuchadnezzar. It's like people today who put their names on tall skyscrapers. So that people will never forget how important and and big and everything they were. You know, we as human beings, we want that. That's our pride, you see. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. I want to endure. It's not about God's name. It's not about God's glory. It's about Nebuchadnezzar. I want people to know who I am and how big I am and how important I am. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent out a summons to assemble all these muckamucks and grand poobahs. And I'm not going to go down through and read them all. And he's calling them to the dedication, the end of verse 2, of the statue that he had erected. Statue in the Aramaic literally means an image, an idol. We know what God thinks of images and idols. The first of the Ten Commandments, he told his own people in the Old Testament. You shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment. You shall not make an image or idol of anything and ever serve it or bow down to it. In other words, God says, I'm the only God there is. Why are you even making other gods? There is no other gods. Don't worship other gods. Don't serve other gods. There is no other God. So all the muckamucks get together for the dedication. They're standing in front of the statue. Verse 4, the herald says, Hey, we all need to bow down when you hear the sound of all this and pay homage, verse 5, to the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had erected. Pay homage means worship. You need to worship the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has erected. Whoever does not bow down and pay homage will immediately be thrown into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And here's one of the reasons why anyone's antennas should go up when you hear stuff like this in religion. Because this is not the way God operates. He doesn't come at us and say, if you don't do this, boom. Now, he gives consequences for disobedience. But what I'm saying is he never forces anyone to do anything. If, if, if from God's perspective... He wants us to do things because we love Him. Not out of guilt, not out of obligation, not out of all that. That's totally not the way God motivates, you see. And yet that's the way cult leaders, that's the way false religions operate. You must conform to this or else. And that's exactly what was happening here. So, verse 7. All the people obviously start bowing down because they didn't want to be thrown into the fiery furnace. But at that time, there were certain people in the kingdom who came and brought malicious accusations against the Jews. I want to point this out. I think you'll appreciate this. In my translation, the words in chapter 3, verse 8, brought malicious accusations, literally, is the words in the Aramaic that describe stinging insects. 
that never leave you alone. You have faces in your mind, don't you? People that do that to you. And here's the other interesting thing. The word against the Jews literally means because they were Jews. See, there was a little prejudice there. We don't like these guys. We want to see them get theirs. So obviously they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Hey, didn't you issue this command that everybody should bow down? And these guys aren't bowing down. So they've not shown, verse 12, proper respect to you, O king. Literally, they are a no to your yes. You're saying yes, bow down, and they're saying no. And the reason is because they don't serve your gods. They don't pay homage to the golden statue that you've erected. They're undiluted and uncompromising in the worship of their God. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a fit of rage, demanded that they bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him. I'm just going to say this. The words fit of rage there means a burning anger. Also in the Aramaic language, it was a word that was used for venom or poison. Again, it reminds us that God always wants us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be under, uh, or to have our emotions under the control of the Holy Spirit. Nebuchadnezzar is a great example, and you can go through the book of Proverbs and other places that warns us against uncontrolled emotions like anger and how it gets us into trouble. And the Bible always wants us to keep our emotions under the control of the Holy Spirit, or else we will, we will poison ourselves and other people, just like Nebuchadnezzar did. So they brought them before the king, and the king says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods, you don't pay homage to the golden statue that I erected? And, and the word true there simply means, are you intentionally and purposely doing this, or was this just a mistake? Did you not mean not to bow down? I want to know, or, or is this something you really meant to do? So he's sort of giving them one more chance of an out. And the bottom line is, they basically said, no, we don't need an out. We've thought through this long and hard, and we're, we're ready to face whatever consequences we need to face. Because notice in verse 15, at the end of the verse, Nebuchadnezzar says, Who is that God who can rescue you from my power? who can deliver you, who can set you free from my hands and my strength. To see where he went from the end of chapter 2 to now all of a sudden where he's at? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you a reply concerning this. Again, what that means is we've not acted hastily here. We're ready to accept whatever consequences there are. Because in verse 17, they say, If our God whom we are serving exists, he is able to rescue us from this furnace. In other words, it's not a question of his ability. It's a question of his will from these three young men. It's not that God couldn't rescue us if he wants to. The only question in their mind is, is it God's will that he rescue us? But king, whether he chooses to rescue us or not, we're not going to bow down to this idol, to this image. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage. His disposition changed. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times hotter than it was normally heated. He ordered strong soldiers in his own army to tie them up and throw them into the furnace. And because he was not thinking properly, because he was allowing his emotions to get into the way, notice the Bible says in verse 22 that some of his best soldiers were burned up just throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace. But notice, these three men fell into the furnace. 
of blazing fire while still securely bound. And that word fell is a really interesting word. It's a word in the Aramaic that pictured submission to someone else's will. And it's a beautiful picture of the fact that at this point, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are just submitting themselves to the will of God. In a sense, by not bowing, they're helpless at this point. They're not in control. And they're just saying, but, but here's what they, they recognize that Nebuchadnezzar really isn't the one in control either. You see, that word fell really from their perspective is, we know that God is the one in control. And, and if God doesn't want us to burn up in the furnace, fine. If he does, fine. We're going to heaven, you know. We're win-win here. But we're going to leave the results to God. He is supreme. Remember, two things. Sufficiency of God, supremacy of God. Just give me a couple more minutes. Verse 24. After they threw them into the furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar was startled and quickly got up. The word startled there means he was shocked, he was amazed, he was dumbfounded. Can you imagine? I mean, the most powerful guy on planet Earth, he throws these guys into this furnace that burned up his own soldiers trying to throw them in. And he looks in and nothing's happening to these guys. And then he says, wasn't there three guys that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, yeah, for sure, O king. He answered, but I see four men untied and walking around in the midst of the fire and no harm has come to them. A couple things I want to encourage you with tonight as we end. First of all, notice the fellowship in the fire. Notice the fellowship in the fire. God doesn't prevent his children from always going into the fire. But when you and I go into the fire for his glory, for his name, there will always be fellowship in the fire. We never go into the fire without him going in there with us. Remember that. Second, notice not only the fellowship in the fire, notice the freedom in the fire. They were untied and walking around even though they went in bound. Because again, there is a freedom in total surrender and submission to the will of God. Whatever it brings. You know, you and I, the reason we get so tied up in knots is because we're trying to prevent something from happening that God may actually want to happen because he knows it's for our best. Or he may be trying to reach somebody else. It might not even be about us on and on. The bottom line is... Our freedom comes when we just surrender and submit to God rather than fighting against what He wants for us and maybe for others. And that's what we see here. They were in the fire, but they were more free in the fire with God than they were out if they would have bowed down to the idol. And here's the last point I want to make tonight. And we'll pick it up here next week. God didn't prevent the flames but he did the power of the flame. God didn't prevent the flames, but he did the power of the flame. See, there are times in our life where God will ask us and want us to go into the fire. But God is saying to us, as as he illustrates here with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Through that fire, first of all, I'll be with you. And you'll be more free in the fire than you would be if you would have made some choice of expediency to try to get yourself from going into the fire. And third, even though you're in the fire, 
I will prevent that fire from having any power over you. That's why it's very significant that Nebuchadnezzar says no harm has come to them. No injury, no hurt, no damage. In fact, notice at the end of verse 27, it says the hair of their heads was not singed, nor were their trousers damaged. Not even the smell of the fire was to be found on them. You see, there's times where God will call upon us to go into the fire and we've got to trust that even when we go through that, we're going to come out the other side and we're not going to be, have to be a victim for the rest of our lives. We're we're not going to have to suffer permanent damage or hurt from that. that. That we just need to trust God and allow Him to bring healing to our life and move on from that rather than that thing defining our lives. Again, God may not prevent the fire, but He will prevent the power of it in our lives. Don't let what God doesn't want to have power over you to have power over you. And anything, in a sense, in a Christian's life that has power over us rather than the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, is something that we're giving power to. Not that it automatically has power over us. We do the same thing with Satan if we give in to temptation. We do the same thing with the world when we conform. We do the same thing with our flesh. It doesn't have to have power over us. There is a power in us greater than any power other than God. You know, He is the power. So what I'm saying is there's no power, there's nothing that's going to come into our lives or pressure us in any way that's stronger than God. So don't give it power. Don't let it have power over you. Even if you go through the fire, realize that God can keep it from having power over your life. There's always fellowship in the fire. There's always freedom in the fire. And God may not prevent the flames from coming into your life. But He will prevent the power of the flames from hurting, injuring, damaging, defining your life. Let God alone define your life, who you are, and what you become. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you. Thank you for sharing the story of the faith, the conviction, the courage of these young men. But more importantly than that, thank you for reminding us that you are a sufficient God. Anything and everything we need can be found in you. And you are the supreme God. There is no other God. And help us, Lord, to keep you high and lifted up. Help us, Lord, keep you exalted in our minds and in our hearts. Help us not to allow the things of the world to have power over us when we already possess the greatest power in the universe within us, the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Help us realize that we can overcome and prevail against anything that is holding us back from being who you created us to be. Help us to say with Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Help us say with Paul in the book of Romans that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And help us live in this way, 
rising above the flames that come into our lives at times. Go with us, Lord. Even right now, if we are going through the fire in our lives, help us not to keep focused on the fire. Help us to focus on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, we'll see you Sunday. We start a new series in the Gospel of John on Sunday for Easter. See you then. Thanks for coming.